Jesus, we come. So hear the word of Jesus, the word, from 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Which do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip? or in love, and with a gentle spirit. Thanks. Always nice to come up here after a threat is read in scripture. Good morning. Uh, Some of you know that I went to college in Chicago which means that Christmas break meant flying from Chicago back to Boise and then from Boise back to Chicago, which usually meant a layover. And one year, 2003, I think, um, I got stuck both ways. I ended up spending the night uh, in Denver on the way back to Boise and then in Minneapolis on the way back to Chicago. Minneapolis, I got laid up in a hotel room, which was nice. Denver, I spent the night in the airport. If you've ever spent the night in an airport, you know you don't sleep. And basically, my only entertainment was the CNN loop that they kept rolling over and over and over again. The coverage that night on CNN was on the capture of Saddam Hussein, which had just happened that day. So I saw a lot of coverage of the hole that he was hiding in and the condition that they found him in. And I find it interesting, and I found it interesting then, that his response when he was captured was to remain defiant. If you remember his words, they were, I am Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq. I am willing to negotiate. Really, (laughs) negotiate. And as he went to trial then in Iraq, he continued to maintain that he was the president of Iraq and that the court had no legitimacy, had no power over him. He used a lot of words. If you've ever watched the trial coverage, he keeps speaking and talking and uses lots and lots of talking. But he had no power. Lots of bluster, but no power. He was was not able to prevent what happened in Iraq. He was put to death by a court that he said had no authority. He had words, but in the end, he had no power. 
In our passage today, Paul is responding to a group within the church at Corinth who has a lot of words. But Paul has more than words. He has power. Paul has kingdom power, the power of God's kingdom in from the future. And Paul's kingdom power trumps these arrogant people's words. Let's pray. Father, you are a God of love and power. You created us. You know us. And you seek righteousness and justice in your creation. Jesus, you came in humility, in gentleness, and you went to the cross for us. Spirit, you make us one despite our arrogance and our sin. Father, this morning, teach us by your Spirit that we may know Christ whom you sent and that you may be glorified. Amen. Rod and Dad have been taking us through 1 Corinthians, and in these first four chapters, we have seen that Paul is addressing divisions within the church at Corinth. Paul has addressed these divisions by arguing that the people in the church have the wrong view of leadership and of ministry. They are looking for wisdom and speaking ability when Paul says that God uses the weak and the shameful things of the world. They are looking to make celebrities of their leaders when God is really the one who does the work. They are trying to be wise and kingly when God is bringing his faithful servants through suffering. As Dad talked about last week, the people of the church in Corinth are criticizing and comparing Paul and their other leaders when God is the only one who can judge them. And Paul and others see themselves as the scum of the earth to be suffering servants for the sake of God's kingdom. When, here, when we get to the end of chapter 4, Paul has talked a lot about division, and he has argued for a specific kind of Christian ministry. In verses 14 to 21, Paul moves from addressing these divisions within the church, and now he's going to start dealing with some major sin issues within the church, beginning in chapter 5. Remember, Paul has been saying that the apostles are the scum of the earth. And then he begins today's passage saying, I'm not talking like this in order to shame you, in order to make you feel bad, but to warn and encourage you. My goal is not to make you feel bad about yourselves, but I want you to understand that the world's power and wisdom are not the same as God's power and wisdom. I want you to get this because I love you as my kids, he says. You see, Paul founded the church at Corinth, and he brought them the gospel, and he takes responsibility for their growth and their maturity, like a father does for his children. He goes on to make the point that the church in Corinth will have many guardians or tutors, but only one father. I don't think he's trying to devalue the place of the guardian. Guardians were important in ancient Rome. They took care of the kids, like in some homes, nannies. Uh, do that today. But guardians are not responsible for their children. Fathers are. Fathers are responsible for the growth and maturity of their kids. And Paul is the father of the church in Corinth. So in verses 16 and 17, Paul urges the community in Corinth to imitate him and promises to send Timothy to them. He says, I'm your dad. Be like me. 
Paul has been living a gospel life, sharing the gospel in his preaching and in showing God's love to others. The people in Corinth have been valuing rhetoric and worldly wisdom. They have not been living like Paul. Be like me, he says. Live a life centered on the gospel. Be ready to be the scum of the earth. Embrace God's foolishness and reject worldly wisdom. Give your life away for Christ. Be a servant of Christ. Be ready to suffer for his kingdom. And just to give them some extra help in living like Paul, he sends Timothy to them. Timothy, whom Paul refers to as a faithful and beloved child, like an older brother to the Corinthians. Timothy, who has been with Paul, he's heard him preach and watched his lifestyle, and he knows that Paul is consistent both in his preaching and in the way that he lives. So Timothy is a good interpreter both of Paul's words and of Paul's actions. He can uh, come to the church in Corinth and read the letter and interpret Paul's lifestyle to the church in Corinth and help Corinth to carry out the message that Paul's sending. So Paul writes this as a message of love and discipline from a father to the church in Corinth. And Timothy, as an older brother, will be there to help interpret the message and make sure that it's lived out. We are still reading Paul's words as a message to us, and we also have men and women equipped and sent by God to help us interpret that message and make sure that we're living it out. Paul sent Timothy. God sends us elders and pastors and mentors to help us to interpret God's word and to give us direction on how to live out God's word in our lives. This week, those of us in growth groups spent some time talking about our mentors and some of the ways that we've been benefited by having mentors and spiritual uh, older brothers. So this morning, I'm not going to spend time uh, doing that because you have done that in your growth groups. And if you're not in growth groups, I encourage you to get in growth groups. It's a wait, great way to make a plug, huh? Um, I would just want to say that mentors have been very important to me, and I encourage you to seek out and learn from men and women who have, who have cultivated a fruitful and deep life in Christ. I also encourage you to pray about joining a growth group. And if you're not in a growth group, find the leader's guides online, um, Cole. Uh, community.org, ministries, growth groups, lesson schedule, find the, the leader's guides for the week. Because these guides are prayerfully and thoughtfully written by older brothers and sisters, like Timothy, who are helping us in the growth groups to interpret God's word and to live it out. God has given authority to Paul to be a father in the church in Corinth. And he continues to exercise his power and authority to us in Scripture. God gave Timothy to the church in Corinth to help interpret Paul's message. And he sends us, pastors and teachers, to do the same. Ultimately, God is our Father. And his words to us, the message he wants us to hear, is given in Scripture. And he sends elders and pastors and teachers and mentors to help us to know and then live out that message. Our job is to submit to God's authority in Scripture and interpreted and taught by our elders and pastors. 
We'll come back to the scriptures later and what Paul's doing with that in this passage. But I want to establish the structure again for you. So in our passage, authority goes God to Paul, to Timothy, to Corinth, to the church. And for us, God to the writers of scripture, to elders and pastors, and then to us. Moving on. In verses 18 and 19, Paul mentions some who have become arrogant, who are defiant toward Paul, and who have lots of big words. These arrogant ones think that they know more than Paul and that Paul won't be coming to tell them otherwise. They may have become arrogant because of their so-called wisdom, thinking that they speak well or that they follow good speakers, people who give them status. Or maybe they are arrogant because they think that they are so spiritual that they can do whatever they want. We'll see in chapter 5 that they're proud of the fact that they have and that they tolerate sinners in their midst. So maybe that's what Paul's referring to here. In any case, there are some in the church who are full of big talk, who have lots of words, like Saddam when he was captured and on trial. Lots of words, but when it came down to it, no power. Like Goliath when he came face to face with the power of Yahweh in a young shepherd boy. Like those who lost in the election this week. Personally, I'm very happy to be done with those election ads. So many words, and they usually felt manipulative and attacking. Lots of words in ads, in the debates, from political commentators. Lots of words by both major, political, um, both major presidential campaigns. But at the end of the day, Mitt Romney has words and no power. And President Obama will have power, has power now and will for four more years. You may or may not like that outcome. I expect some of us voted for the president in this room, some of us voted for Governor Romney, and some of us voted for others. But here's the bigger picture. President Obama has power now and will continue to have power for another four years, but his power is only the power of the American government. In the world, that looks like serious power, but it is nothing compared to kingdom power. From a bigger perspective, President Obama has only words, and God has power. And if Mitt Romney had won, he would have only words, and God would have power. Neither of these men would have kingdom power or any kind of ultimate power just by, just by being president. President Obama has been granted authority by God to maintain justice and to try and promote good for four more years. But only God has real power and authority. No government can do more than to seek justice and promote goodness. But God has real kingdom power to shape destinies, to defeat sin and death, and to establish true justice and righteousness. Mitt Romney, words with no power. Barack Obama, words and authority in the government, but no ultimate power. No kingdom power. God has power. One of the movements that comes to mind when I think of arrogant folks with words but no power is the new atheism. Have you heard of this group of, of um, mostly men, maybe all men, who 
who are very critical of religion and religious people. Uh, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and Victor Stenger are representative of this movement. Just to give you a clue as to what they advocate, some of their books are titled, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason, or The God Delusion, or Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. Another one is God, The Failed Hypothesis, How Science Shows that God Does Not Exist. My least favorite is God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. That last book is by Christopher Hitchens, and we'll come back to him. Their overall argument as a movement is that science teaches us all that we need to know, and everything that science doesn't yet know, it will soon. We have no need for God. In fact, religion itself is evil and causes terror and violence. If we would all just give up our silly superstitions and trust in science, then the world would be a much better place. God is not real or necessary, and our morality should be based on the inherent dignity of the human person. Christopher Hitchens was one of the great advocates of this view, and it is with no pleasure that I say that he died brutally of cancer last year. He was strongly anti-Christian. He didn't call himself an atheist. He called himself an anti-theist, which means he did not just see no evidence for God and therefore couldn't believe in him. He actually says that he, even if he had found evidence for God, he would have rejected, rejected him. Among a great host of people that he was very critical of was Mother Teresa. Uh, my least favorite memory of Hitchens, and I should say he was a, a very entertaining writer and has some, wrote some very interesting things, and in some ways he was a courageous man. But my least favorite memory of him was his response to the death of Jerry Falwell, a man with whom I have disagreement, but I also expect to meet Jerry Falwell in the New Jerusalem someday. When Hitchens was interviewed after the death of Falwell, I think the, the same day that Falwell died, Hitchens called him an ugly little charlatan, a little toad, a horrible little person, and an evil old man. He used those words, again, the day of Falwell's death on national television. It seems to me that this actually shows very little of the dignity for humans that Hitchens claims to want to have and to share with others. I wonder about Hitchens in death. I wonder what the final renewal of the world will be like for him. I wonder what it will be like to stand before Christ as Christ judges the world as king. Will Hitchens have any more words? Will he defiantly tell God to his face, I don't believe in you, and even if you exist, I wish you didn't? What good will his words be before the awesome power of the Almighty God? Hitchens always had words, sometimes funny, sometimes nasty, occasionally abusive, usually arrogant. But what good are words in the face of the power of the kingdom of God? I pray that God shows mercy to Hitchens' soul, a soul I believe he has despite his protests. I pray for mercy to all of the new atheists, but at the same time, I'm reminded to be grateful that I don't rely on my own words when I'm before God. It is not my words 
or my defiance that gives me dignity and purpose in God's kingdom. So Paul was confronting this group of arrogant people within the church at Corinth, and he challenges them. You have words, but do you have power? The kingdom of God is not about your words, but about God's power, about kingdom power. Paul has been talking a lot about the kingdom of God using different words. He actually rarely, in this book and in any of his letters, used the phrase kingdom of God only occasionally. So using different words, he's been talking about the kingdom in this letter so far. He says that the kingdom is not, here's the list, not worldly wisdom. It's not speaking ability. It's not emphasizing great leaders. It's not in following someone's coattails. It's not worldly power. It's not the wise things of the world or the strong things of the world. It's not in miraculous signs or education or nobility or winning elections or having a strong military or having a strong republic or even having the best speakers or the best teachers or the most expressive worship. You could have said a lot of those things about the kingdom of Rome. You could have said a few of those things about the church at Corinth. The kingdom of Rome might consist of those things, but, and power in Rome might be about those things, but the kingdom of God is not. The kingdom of God does not consist in those things. Paul, as father to the church in Corinth, does not want to see his beloved children focused on the wrong criteria, seeking after the wrong kind of power. What does the kingdom of God consist of? Paul says, power and not words. Not words, worldly wisdom, bluster, or arrogance. So what kind of power then is Paul talking about? I'm going to try and define it for us, kingdom power, uh, which I do with some hesitation because Paul doesn't define it for us. It's always a scary task, but I'm going to give it a, a go. Kingdom power is Christ's authority and power to establish and to rule his kingdom. Say that again. Kingdom power is Christ's authority and power to establish and to rule his kingdom. And Paul has been showing us that we see kingdom power, this power to establish and rule the kingdom, in both weakness and in strength. This isn't a, a rule for you, but... Um, this is something that we see. He often establishes the kingdom in what looks like weakness, but he rules the kingdom often in what looks like strength. So I'll explain that. Paul has already told us a number of times in 1 Corinthians that kingdom power is on display in weakness. In apostles who are the scum of the earth, in foolishness, in the cross. The greatest display of kingdom power is Christ, the king himself come down, Jesus coming in weakness and showing God's love and power when he goes to the cross for us. Again, that looks like foolishness, like weakness. The early church understood this. So Tertullian, an old, um, an early church father, theologian, uh, has the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As people go and are martyred for the faith, 
the church grows. The church continues to be established as people die for its sake. Because in the face of the kingdom of Rome, the power of God will often look like weakness for now. For now, while God allows sin and destruction to have its way, the cross looks like shame, looks like foolishness, looks like death. Because it is. In the eyes of Rome, in the eyes of this world, the cross is shame and foolishness and death. But the cross is also strength and wisdom and the power of God, kingdom power. For now, because of the upside-down values of the world, strength looks like weakness. Wisdom looks like foolishness. Power can even look like death. We know, however, that the cross defeated sin and death, that the foolishness of God has overcome God's enemies, that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of the world. At the cross, Christ established his kingdom. He planted a seed that no worldly kingdom can kill. He established an embassy among the kingdoms of the world. He laid claim to all of his creation. It will all be his again. For now, that looks like weakness. But not forever. Someday, Christ will come back in glory. And kingdom power will be overwhelmingly powerful. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before the crucified and risen Lord. And Christ will come not to give up his life, but to finish off his enemies, to judge the world, and to fully establish his good and just kingdom. Kingdom power will be powerful. Kingdom power is already working, but kingdom power does not yet appear to be as powerful as it is. The kingdom is already here, but the kingdom is not yet fully established. Christ has already won, but his enemies are not yet removed. One of the pictures I have when I think of this kind of kingdom power is D-Day. Before D-Day, uh, some paratroopers went in in various places uh, throughout Europe and landed and established small, uh, essentially, um, establishments of the kingdom right? Establishments of the, the allies' forces. Uh, they're not bringing full defeat to the enemy. They're, they didn't uh, defeat the Axis on their own, but they established pockets of power within, um, within Europe. But when Christ comes back, it will be like the landing at Normandy. He will come in full power and overcome all of his enemies finally. We see glimpses of this in Scripture where God's power is powerful and not just weakness. We see moments where kingdom power is, is power, not weakness, where God's glory doesn't look shameful but glorious. It's interesting to me, and I think relevant to our passage, that a number of those places where God's kingdom power looks powerful involve God judging and purging his own people of sin. So, for example, Moses establishing the covenant at Sinai, God is powerful. 
Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal, where God's people were worshiping false gods and God showed up in glory. In the New Testament, we see this when God strikes down Ananias and Sapphira because they lied to the apostles about the gift they were giving in Acts 5. God didn't want this new establishment of his kingdom, this new community, to begin with sin, so he purges the community of sin. God reveals, occasionally, God reveals kingdom power as power, and often at moments, again, when he wants to confront sin and discipline his people. This is a moment where God is ruling his kingdom. He's established it, and now he's ruling over it. I think that's what God is doing here in our letter. He is ruling the kingdom of Christ by using Paul to confront the words of the arrogant and to discipline sin within the Corinthian church. We'll get into the specific sins that Paul is confronting next week. But he talks about their arrogance in allowing this sin to continue and about the power of Christ to confront and judge that kind of sin. And so Paul sets up a contrast between the words of the arrogant and the kingdom power of God to confront that arrogance and sin. Here he makes a not-so-subtle threat. I will come to you and find out what kind of power you have. His threat, of course, is even more explicit in verse 21. So how do you want me to come when I visit? Should I bring my rod? Or should I come with love and gentleness? Most parents have said something similar. Sure, you can make that choice. There will be consequences if you do. Up to you, what choice would you like to make? Should I be prepared to discipline you? Or can we put this behind us? Paul is not being subtle here. This is a clear threat. I am your father. I want you to be like me and I will discipline you if I have to do so. Kingdom power is on Paul's side, and he is ready to use that kingdom power to help his beloved children grow up. Just a quick note, if you have the NIV, your translation might say whip instead of rod there in verse 21. Do you want me to come with a whip? Uh, That's just a bad translation. Um... In fact, I think some NIV translators have apologized for that translation. The word should be rod, referring specifically to a father's rod of discipline. It's how he keeps us in line. Uh, For us, rod might even be too harsh a term. (laughs) Um, The same word, for example, is used of the Greek translation of Proverbs 13. He who spares the rod hates his son. We need correction. In fact, again, the same word is used in the Greek translation of Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They, they point me in the right direction. They move me when I'm going the wrong direction. If I, if I went this direction, I wouldn't have food and water to eat. So I'm glad, I'm comforted that you move me with your rod of correction. We need correction. So Paul's letter to Corinth is exercising kingdom power and providing correction to the church. He wants to help the church in Corinth live kingdom power, to stop living out worldly values and start living kingdom ones, to stop trying to live like the kingdom of God is just a bunch of words, and to start living like it's full of power. So, 
Finally, what does it mean for us to live kingdom power? It means, among other things, submitting our lives to God's authority as given to us in Scripture. It means listening obediently to Scripture and humbly seeking wisdom from our elders and pastors and mentors. It means being ready to be confronted with the rod of discipline for our sin or comforted with love and a gentle spirit when we're faithful. It means being ready to suffer, to be weak and foolish and shameful, like Paul and the apostles. It means giving our lives away for others, not living in sin or in comfort, but living lives that participate in Christ's kingdom work of establishing his kingdom here and now. It means living lives of self-giving love. We live kingdom power by confronting the values and powers of Rome or of America with the truth that Christ is king. We live kingdom power by refusing to fear when elections don't go our way and refusing to boast when they do. His kingdom is not of this world. He has overcome the world. We live kingdom power by giving up our rights and instead serving and submitting to others. We participate with Christ in establishing his kingdom in the world when we live cross-shaped lives, when we sacrifice for others the way Christ did for us, when we live faithful lives, obedient to God's word in the scriptures, when we are obedient in our families, in our jobs, in our marriages, with our finances, with our time, with our Facebook accounts, with our entertainment, when nobody is watching, when many people are watching. We participate with Christ in establishing his kingdom when we are faithful in large things and in small ones. We participate in establishing the kingdom when we live lives submitted to the scripture and to each other, when we give up our arrogant words and submit to God's authority in his word. So how do you want the word of God to come to you? With a, with a rod of correction or love and the spirit of gentleness? With a rod of discipline or in comfort and encouragement? With a rod Richie or with Jackson? I have to give Larry Tingler credit for that. <laughs> when the word comes to you, will you submit? Or will you respond with words of defiance, claiming your own kingdom in the face of reality? I encourage you to submit to God's authority in the scriptures, to participate with Christ in establishing his kingdom, to live kingdom power, even though we know that that power too often looks like weakness, shame, and foolishness for now. Christ is coming. His kingdom is being established. And he will rule with justice and righteousness. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we praise you as Lord of creation. Be glorified in our lives this week 
We pray that you would continue to establish your son's kingdom in us, not in words, but in the power of your Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.